This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone. Well, two decades, as we all know, is a long time. It's a long time and an instant uh, all at the same time, isn't it? Well, the CEO of Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador is stepping down at the end of the year after 21 years at the helm. It's been a busy two decades and things haven't slacked off even as Craig Pollitt begins winding down. Well, he joins me now. Well, hello. Hi, how are you? Great. So, Craig, um, this is, I guess, a kind of a, uh, a bittersweet time. You're stepping down as CEO of uh, MNL. You've been at it for a while now. Uh, how does it feel? Uh, it feels good. It feels right. Uh, you're right. It is bittersweet. I mean, I've been doing it for almost 22 years. Um, and when I started back in 2001, <clears throat> May of 2001, and I started as CEO, like there, there was no sort of work my way up the ladder, right? So it's the only job I've ever had here. Uh, and it is coming to an end. So that's, it is a bit bittersweet, but we've done a lot of good work and I'm very excited about you know, I'm 54 years old, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about doing something different for the, the third act of my working career. Now, uh, you've been busy. You haven't been putting your feet up, so to speak, uh, preparing for uh, for your, I'm not going to call it retirement no. because it's not, you're moving on to other things. Uh, but you've been busy and you attended the MNL um, conference this past week in Gander. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. What were some of the highlights there? Oh gosh! Well, there was I mean, there was a lot. There was almost forty sessions over three three and a half days. Uh, three hundred plus people, almost four hundred people when you account everybody. You know, all the VIPs and the guests and the speakers and the exhibitors and all that kind of stuff. Uh, for me, there was a few highlights. One was a lot of the work we've been doing on gender uh, and diversity has really showed up at this conference. We had a, a summit for women. Uh, and uh, diverse gender folks at the beginning, like the, the night before the actual conference started, uh, we had that summit. Um, and that was, I, I didn't attend, but from all reports, it was just a glorious event. There was awards given out. There were some really deep conversations happening. And I think for the first time since we've been doing a lot of this gender work and, and trying to expand it beyond just the idea of gender, just trying to look at inclusivity on councils and diversity on councils. And we've been doing this for a few years now. It was the first event where we didn't just get to talk about the challenges that uh, women and uh, you know, diverse folks face trying to, to stake their claim on councils and in public life, but we got to celebrate a lot of the successes. And I think that was a really meaningful thing. And then we had sessions, we had a big plenary session for male allyship and gender equality that was remarkable. We already had uh, a bunch of men, cisgendered men from the sector who had volunteered to step up and do male allyship training with the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, so much so that FCM has had to sort of designate a separate training stream just for the folks from Newfoundland and Labrador. We had that much response that they're doing sort of a special run just for us. 
And then in the session where we were talking about that and talking about gender-based violence and a, a bunch of really difficult things, um, a whole other group of men, more than we actually had before, stood up in the session and volunteered uh, to do the training and, and become sort of leaders on this stuff. And that was that was a big moment. Um, we had some really critical sessions on climate change, and we've been talking about climate change for what seems like forever at MNL and trying to organize the sector to prepare for what we know is already coming, but also try to change its behaviors to try to mitigate where we can, you know, what doesn't have to come down the road. Uh, and several of those sessions hit hard, I think, this time, because we'd had the forest fires in Central. We'd just been through Fiona and the impact on the southwest coast, and we had testimonials. We had Mayor Button. We had Mayor Manuel. We had people who had just gone through it sitting in front of all of our members saying the, the time for talking about what to do if this happens is over. Climate change is not coming. Climate change is here. We're deep into it. We're way too far into it now to sort of think about whether or not it's happening. And to be quite honest, <laughs> even if you're still a denier, the impacts, whatever reason, for whatever reason, the impacts are happening and they are outrageously expensive for municipalities. And they're going to cause incredible planning challenges for municipalities. So we need to start wrapping our heads around that kind of stuff. You know, I was talking to, I've been talking to Brian Button over <laughs> the last month or so. Of course, uh, we have a regular um, uh, updates from him. And of course, I was talking to Barry Manuel from Grand Falls, Windsor. And, and one of the key things they've been talking about is their emergency plans and how important it is to keep those up to date and, and to make sure that they're flexible to address any of these kinds of issues that no doubt are coming our way. So um, what were municipalities telling you about that? Are municipalities prepared? I think municipalities are as prepared as they can be. I mean, and it's tough to say municipalities as a general term, right? I mean, there's, there's 275 of them. Some of them are highly prepared. Some of them are not really prepared at all. Uh, but generally speaking, I think most of them think they're prepared. I think the underlying challenge, and we hear this all the time, and it's not just about emergency plans, although that's extremely important, uh, but just in terms of planning in general. And I just gave a, a talk a couple of days ago to uh, the Newfoundland Labrador Association of Professional Planners for World Planning Day. And sort of the gist of my talk was we're not great at planning in general here. Um, we don't have the capacity in the sector to do proper planning. And I don't mean visualizing where we might be. I mean actually coming up with scenarios, assigning resources, being ready to respond when things happen, um, measuring our impact, measuring whether we're, where we're getting, you know, having proper milestones in place. The planning capacity in the sector is worryingly low. And that's the thing we need to deal with. Emergency plans are in place, right? In, in most communities where they, they have any kind of size of community at all, there is an emergency plan. The question is, to the point that you were making earlier about being flexible, can they implement that plan? Is there, a, you know, is there capacity within the community, in the municipality, sorry, in the town office, to take that plan and act on it when the need arises? And that's the big question. And I would argue that in most municipalities, no, that capacity is not there. They probably have a part-time clerk who is overrun with administrative work all the time. 
and they're not necessarily prepared when something big goes down. And I think that speaks to, and I've talked about this a lot in the last 20 years, if we expect these municipalities to do all this stuff, we need to invest in the resources for them to do it. And we haven't. We just collectively as a society, we are not investing in municipalities and the capacity to do necessary things the way we should. And that's an important point. I want to talk to you a little bit more about that because it is at the forefront right now when we come back right after this. Our guest today on On Target is the CEO of Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador, Craig Pollitt. We'll be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And our guest today on On Target is Craig Pollitt, outgoing CEO of Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador. And we're talking about some of the challenges facing municipalities, none the least of which is, uh, you know, this whole issue around climate change and some of the very extraordinary circumstances we saw this past summer. Unfortunately, they're becoming more frequent or so it seems we saw the wildfires in central Newfoundland affecting affecting communities like Bishop's Falls, Grand Falls, Windsor, and of course, Hurricane Fiona in Port Basque. And, and a lot of municipalities, Craig, as you well know, in Newfoundland and Labrador run entirely by volunteers. Um, sometimes there are staff who are paid, but sometimes on a part-time basis. And when you're dealing with something like Hurricane Fiona, which is 24-7, it's having an extraordinary impact on a community, a relatively small community, um, people are not unaffected themselves, and yet they still have to soldier through. What kind of an impact does that have, and how do we need to change things in our municipalities so that people are stepping up and uh, and able to be compensated, I suppose, or recognized for this extraordinary work? Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's a big systemic change needed there, right? You're right. There's, you know, quite often I'm on the radio or on TV or talking to a group about the need for systemic change. And it seems very bureaucratic and, uh, you know, objective and detached. But we're talking about human beings here, right? So we don't elect robots to council. We elect uh, real humans, our neighbors, to council. Real humans and our neighbors are the CAOs and the town managers and the town clerks. And you're right. Uh, many, many, many of them are part-time. I think something like 74% of municipalities have one or fewer employees. So think about that. When Lots of times when municipalities are being criticized or when municipal government is being discussed, I think people have this sense that you know, government is government. You know, the provincial government is big and it's got lots of staff. Councils are big. They've got lots of money. No, they're not. They're tiny. They have no money. Most of them have a part-time clerk. That's it. They might have a part-time outside worker. But they're expected to deliver on some extremely important and in some cases critical to life safety uh, services. And that's, that kind of system can't hold. And I think that's what you're seeing on the southwest coast. And mayors like Mayor Button, Brian Button in Port Channel, Port of Basque, and mayors in the surrounding region – are doing their best. They are they are not uh, trained to to handle these sort of very complex disaster scenarios. Uh, they're doing remarkably well given the resources they have. Um, but the fact is, and, and well, the fact is that locally they don't have the resources to respond. So what ends up happening 
is the provincial government, and in some cases the federal government, had to come in with emergency funding and staff and all sorts of resources, get focused on that situation. And that's happened here. And I think if you ask Mayor Button and any of the mayors in that region, they are very grateful for the provincial government stepping up and the federal government stepping up to help out. And I think that should happen. I mean, there's no, I'm not arguing with that. I think the bigger question we need to ask ourselves is why are we leaving this frontline form of government, the one that's there in the community when houses are being washed into the ocean, when roads are being destroyed? Why are we leaving that frontline government without any real tools to deal with that? Why why does the emergency or the disaster have to happen and then the municipality become overwhelmed and then have to go to the province to ask for help? Why can't we invest up front like preventative medicine in a system of municipal government that can actually plan better for these disasters and respond better when they happen? Um, Because, you know, you look around every four years, we have municipal elections. Every time we do... We get somewhere around 50%, usually more, municipalities don't actually need a contested election because not enough people are stepping up to run. So we'll have a municipality with five seats on council, maybe five people run, more likely four people run. And there's all sorts of demographic reasons for that. We have an older population. People are volunteering differently than they used to. But I think if you were to ask people, and we've done some asking, it just seems like such a big job with no with, with uh, in, insufficient resources to do it, um, and I think that's a big challenge. That un, until we can get ourselves to the point where uh, municipal councils have the resources to do just what they're supposed to do now. Not, I mean, I'd love to talk about what they could do in the future, but just to do what they do now, they don't have the resources. And we can get that dealt with. Then maybe we will get more people running for council because you realize that, yeah, I can actually affect some change here in this system. And somebody's got your back. I mean, it takes a special kind of person to step up and and take on that volunteer role. I was talking to uh, the mayor of a community on the southwest coast, a relatively small community, but also in that uh, disaster area. And he quite frankly told me, you you know, I've got enough on my plate on a personal level, uh, dealing with, uh, you know, his family and personal sickness within the family. Um, And now all of a sudden, a, a disaster, still a volunteer, still trying his best. Uh, It takes a special kind of person to step up and do that kind of job. Does it make it harder for people to step up when you know that you could be facing something like that with with very little in the way of uh, someone having your back? Oh, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. And the world that counselors face, I mean, when I started this job in 2001, uh, I'm starting to sound like my grandfather now, way back when I first started, um, the municipal sector was simpler, and that's not that long ago. Like, think about that. In the grand scheme of things, 20 years ago is not that long a period of time. But in that period of time, we had, in the late 90s, 2000s, there was a lot of people in the municipal sector. Um, and they were, you know, generally speaking, the baby boomers, who, you know, there were so many of them, and they had young families when they got involved in municipal government, There was lots of elections. There was lots of energy. And what was required of a municipality was a much simpler formula, a much simpler idea. There was some basic stuff you had to do. 
So what we're seeing is what's required of a municipality has gotten exponentially more complicated. Climate change issues, housing issues, all sorts of social issues, all sorts of regulatory issues from the federal and provincial government. You know, the, the one we keep talking about in the last few years, wastewater treatment. Um, these things are, they are not simple problems to solve. They are, in the language of today's policy folks, these are wicked problems with many, many factors going into them. But the municipal sector, its legislation, the tools that it has at its disposal, has not grown to meet those new demands. We have the same system of municipal government today, pretty much, that we had in 2001. But the challenges they face and the, the things they're supposed to solve have grown massively and gotten more complex. So that's happening. But at the same time, uh, you know, if you look at, I remember at the conference last week, Mayor Brenton from Maine Brook was saying his community, uh, something, I'm going to screw up the numbers here, so I apologize, but it's something like 80% of his population is over the age of 70 or 70% is over 80, something like that. Uh, the pool of people willing to step up, even if being a counselor was a simple job, the pool of people willing to step up to do that simple job is disappearing. But it's not a simple job. It's a really difficult job. And uh, I think right now most people in the sector would say, most counselors and probably a lot of staff would say the job has gotten far harder than anybody ever realized it was going to. We have no new tools, no new authority, no new re uh, revenue to tackle these tools, these uh, jobs. We're not sure how much longer we can hold out. And, and that's, that's the challenge. And I think people coming into the sector are seeing this. Among a lot of the changes that we've seen, that rapid changes that we've seen over the last little while includes inflation. I know that's having an impact on municipalities. I want to talk to you a little bit more about that when we come back after the break. Our guest today on On Target is CEO of MNL, Craig Pollitt. We'll be back right after this. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. And our guest today on On Target is outgoing CEO of municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador, Craig Pollitt, 28 years at the helm. And uh, uh, Craig, we've seen so many huge changes over the last number of years, spurred in large part due to the pandemic and municipalities really had to pivot during that time. But inflation has to be making, um, you know, just keeping up with the basic operations operations of a municipality really difficult. Uh, how are how are municipalities coping? Oh well I mean their municipalities are quite good at maneuvering their budgets, right? They they're on an annual budget cycle. Uh, things happen in any given year that they've got to respond to. The challenge right now for a lot of them is they get pushed on both ends of their budget because of inflation. So residents are obviously challenged by inflation. And they have less money to to spend on fees or taxes, that sort of thing. And you know, and to be quite honest, quite a, you know, there's a lot of folks. Municipal taxes are not necessarily the first thing people think about when they think about their disposable income. Um, so, quite legitimately, I think 
towns are going to get pressure if they haven't already from residents about taxes going up or fees going up because the cost of everything else to the citizen is going up. On the other end, the cost of everything a municipality does is going up. So the cost of materials, the cost of gas, the cost of everything they use as inputs to deliver the services they deliver is going up. So from an operational perspective, there's always going to be choices made. Every government makes choices over the course of their budget year. Can we afford to do this this year? Can we afford to do what we thought we were going to do? Uh, And they make those decisions. So I think operationally, municipalities are really hyper-focused right now on the cost of operations, what they're doing on a week-to-week, month-to-month basis to make sure that they stay in line with their budget as close as possible. Uh, Because, of course, they have a balanced budget. They have to have a balanced budget. They can't, you know, if, if the province needs to borrow money for operations, if the federal government needs to borrow money for operations, they do it. Um, the province, we, we, we have long conversations, public conversations about the provincial government annual deficit and the debt. Municipalities are not allowed to have a deficit or debt. Not allowed. It's against the law. So they have to come in under budget. Uh, so it's a lot of work. But then beyond that, I think some of the bigger impact is coming and maybe started already on infrastructure. Uh, We see that quite a lot. Anytime there's upward pressure in the economy, uh, municipalities will get quotes done for a piece of road that they need to fix or a culvert they need to replace or a building they need to build. And those early estimates will come in. They'll get funding you know, they'll get, they'll get these uh, estimates get refined. They get funding for it. Sometimes getting that funding takes months and months and months. By the time they get the funding approved to do it, uh, I can remember back maybe 10 years ago, municipalities getting funding, then going back to the original consultants to say, okay, it's time to build our arena or build the thing we were going to do. And the costs had almost doubled because of upward pressure in the economy. Once that happens, the municipality is on their own. They can't go back to the province and say, we're really sorry. Inflation has driven up the cost of our project. Can you please give us more money? Once you sign the contract for the funding, that's it. You're in. Whatever share you're getting from the federal or provincial governments is locked in. So I think we're going to start to see some of that happening now. And that has a longer-term impact because then a municipality has to decide, are we going to do that road work? Or are we going to replace that culvert? Or are we going to add on to that arena or fix the arena or whatever. So all those conversations, and this is, you know, in the middle of November, budgets are being worked on right now uh, for next year. They have to be submitted before by the end of the year and then adopted or accepted by municipal and provincial affairs. Um, that's It's going to be a really challenging budget period because municipalities know, right? they know right now it's going to be more expensive to do the same stuff in 2023 than it was to do it in 2022. But they know that residents who are under the same kind of pressure don't want to pay more in taxes. So something's got to give in that equation, right? So there's a lot of discussions happening in the sector right now. So what is the future then of municipal governance uh, with inflation and demographics? Is that accelerating the need for regionalization? What, What do you expect municipalities will look like in the next 10 years? Uh, I think it absolutely is accelerating it. Uh, I think the need, uh, I can remember saying 
and m and has been saying this for quite a long time, the time to do regionalization, the time to do any big change is not when you're in a period of crisis. It's to do it when you're in a period of relevant stability, but you know that crisis is a possibility. And we had that opportunity a decade ago. Unfortunately, now we're entering a period of crisis, I think. So regionalization is not a should we, can we question anymore. Um, and there's whether regionalization ends up looking like what we recommended in our joint uh, working group paper, whether it looks like something else, I think the idea that we can continue on without some form of regionalization is out the window. It's, it's over. Um, we have to have regionalization. The entire rest of the world does local government by regionalization. And I am dumbfounded when I hear people saying, we can't do this. I don't understand. If the whole rest, literally the whole rest of the world has done it, and yet there are people in this province saying, nah, this is too much for us. We can't do that. What's wrong with us that we can't do it? I don't, I don't, I don't believe it. I, I know we can do it. So to me, it's, there's a matter of political will and timing. Uh, and I think the right analysis, the right conversation. I don't think there will be a municipal sector the way we see it now in another 10 years, if we don't do regionalization, I think what you're going to end up having are individual councils, one by one, five, 10, 12 a year, starting to dissolve. And what happens when they dissolve is if there's no nearby municipality to amalgamate them with, the provincial government has to take over the running of those local services. And if people have an issue with a regional government running their local services, they need to think carefully about the possibility of confederation building running their local services because that's where you're going to end up so i think it's there's no option anymore in my mind it has to happen but along with that i think there's some really now i think i see that as a positive thing i think communities will be healthier people's lives will be better served public services will be better if we do regionalization i don't think it's it's something we do because we're up against the wall. I think it's something we do because it's the right thing to do, and it's going to be better than what we have now. Are the right people part of the conversation, though? Because we, we, we do hear uh, some pushback from communities who say, you know, m is making these decisions. We're not part of the conversation. We don't understand how this is going to work. We already have a form of regionalization in our area, uh, and we don't want to lose that. Um, so is it important to get all uh, players involved in the conversation? Oh, absolutely. And, and so, number one, m is not making any decisions. m can't make these decisions. The provincial government has to make them. m made recommendations based on our membership. We're, we're a membership-based organization. We advocate for the municipal sector. We don't advocate for other sectors. So that was our job. Literally, that was our job. Um, but to your point about other voices, there was lots of other voices involved. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people living in local service districts and unincorporated areas were involved in a public consultation in 2017 and another one that happened just before the release of the paper. The minister met with dozens of people and communities outside the municipal sector. And the whole line of recommend, the whole process that we laid out in the joint working group paper was a consultation process. It was going to be another third layer of consultation to include everybody 
local service districts, unincorporated areas, indigenous communities who have a whole other sort of stake and take on this. Um, and it doesn't have to look the same in every region. It doesn't have to be a one-size-fits-all thing. But the fact is the vast majority of our communities will not survive without this uh, some new form of governance. And I think the day when we, when a, a community can say, we don't want any part of this, uh, we are totally on our own, leave us alone, well, that's, that's a fallacy. You're not totally on your own. You're relying on communities around you. Every community relies on other communities around them for the necessities of life. And we all need to be in on that system somehow. So, you know, there are ways to do this. I, I think when people say, oh, the decision's been made, we weren't included, uh, to be quite honest, I think that's spin. I don't think that's a real thing. I, I think there are some communities who have a pretty good deal right now. They, they are not p uh, pitching in the way that maybe they should. And this is a way for them to sort of make enough noise to try to throw things off the rails. And it's unfortunate, uh, and I think those communities – if we don't end up with some sort of regional government, those communities are going to suffer just as much or more than municipalities because the idea that the provincial government with its own financial challenges is going to continue to prop up all these communities, thats you're living in a dream world if you think that's going to happen. So future-wise, there needs to be a new fiscal framework. I mean, I think what I said at the conference recently was uh, it's time to stop sort of tweaking the system around the edges. We need a fundamental rethink of how we do sub-provincial governance. So municipalities, LSDs, unincorporated areas, they need a new fiscal framework. We need a new way to look at how we fund local services and regional services. I think we need to get serious about how we plan infrastructure. Right now, municipalities, LSDs, if they get money for, for infrastructure, it's a once-a-year thing. You compete with other communities, which when you think about it is bizarre, but they compete with each other to get provincial and federal money. But it's, once, it's a once-a-year thing, and very few of these projects are one-year projects. They're two-, three-, four-year-long projects. And yet every year, communities sit and wait to see if they're going to get funding to do the rest of their project. And I really think we need the sector needs some sort of agreement, an accord, something with the provincial government that frames out the nature of that relationship. Because we still see instances, we have a pretty good relationship with the provincial government right now. We, we have, to be honest, for most of the time that I've been around, the relationship has been a pretty good working relationship. But there are some fundamental things that a, a provincial government does that impact municipalities. And we don't hear about it until the decision is made. And in other provinces, provincial governments have to consult with the municipal sector up to a year in advance before they make any change that can financially impact municipalities. We don't have that here. And we need some sort of agreement that says, look, if you're going to do something that affects us, we need to be at the table talking to you about it. We can't find out about it in a news release after the decision has been made. Well, we looked at amalgamation, and um, some people felt that that was a success. Other people felt if it was a failure in certain areas. Um, when do you really realistically expect to see uh, regional governments start to be formed? 
Well, that depends entirely on how the provincial government wants to to do it. Uh, I mean, you know, there's there's stuff we can do that's regionalization. We're doing stuff right now that is regionalization. To your point earlier, there are communities that are sharing services, and there's not not enough of them, but there are some. So we can the province can push that sort of activity, can invent that sort of activity almost immediately. And that stuff can happen pretty quickly. That could happen early in the new year or anytime in 2023. If they want to get serious about restructuring the sector for a longer term impact, um, I'm not sure what the timeline for that would be. I mean, I know in our report, we said it's a three phase thing. We said you need to spend at least a year, maybe more, just having conversations within communities, within regions about what their region might look like, what they might want, you know, this this system to look like for them, because every region needs to have its own system. Then we need to spend a year or so putting together, well, if, if this is what you want, how are you going to run it? What sort of system do you want to set up to, to manage all of that? And then you need to run it for a couple of years to see if it works or not. So you could be talking about a five-year process, which seems like a long time and it seems onerous, but we're talking about changing an order of government. We're talking about making a change that should last several generations. I really don't think three to five years getting it right is a big, you know, an extraordinary investment of time. It would be way worse to rush something and then 10 years later realize none of this is working and now we got to start over again. That would be a waste of time. So I think it's, you know, and we get a lot of pushback from people who are saying, God, that's going to be expensive. You know, people talk about another order of government, and we're not talking about that, but and more taxation and all that kind of stuff. I would ask people to take a look at what they think the system costs now. What kind of money is being spent on the southwest coast in response to Fiona that maybe wouldn't have had to have been spent if we'd been investing in local capacity and for the last 10 years uh, instead of keeping the system the way it is? So if we don't do regional government, how much are we going to spend over the next 20 years with a weak, fragmented municipal system still trying to deal with big climate change issues, big demographic issues? Uh, And I, I think that analysis has to happen. Our guest today on On Target is outgoing CEO of Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador, Craig Pollitt. We'll be back right after this. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Our guest today on On Target is outgoing CEO of Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador. Craig, 28 years now at the helm and municipal governments, uh, governance, sorry, obviously at a crossroads. Is this a good time to move on? How do you feel about it? Oh, I I think for a a bunch of reasons, it's exactly the right time to move on. So you mentioned a bunch of big issues right at Crossroads, and they are. Uh, And they're issues that I took up with the board, you know, just after I started here. Some of these things took 10 years to work on. Like the regional government stuff we've been working on, I think started in maybe 2004, 2006, something like that. These things don't happen quickly big policy issues. So the next push 
on a lot of these issues. There are going to be similar kinds of timelines. Like we just talked about, you know, what if regional government happens? How long is it going to happen? That, that could be a, a five-year process. So I always knew, you know, back when I took the job, that M&L probably wouldn't be my last job, that I would move on to some other facet of my life after M&L. Uh, I'm 54 years old now, so I've got an, a window to try some new things, and that's what I intend to do. So I won't, I won't end my career at M&L. So it's a good window for me. It's the right time for me, but it's the right time for a new CEO to come in and start some of those new conversations. So you know, new conversations have to happen around infrastructure. They have to happen around regionalization because we've come to a crossroads we're going to go in one direction or another. So a new conversation about regionalization has to happen. Fiscal framework and the way municipalities raise revenue. All the diversity issues that we've been working on the last little while, gender, race, all that kind of stuff within the sector. New conversations need to start happening on that now. And they're going to take some time. And I think it's only fair to the organization and fair to the sector that somebody who's going to be here for the entirety of that conversation, start them. Because even if I hung around, I'm not going to be around long enough to get us through those sort of policy arcs. Uh, and I wouldn't want to get partway through and then leave. And somebody has to come in and pick up my thread and run with it. So I think for, for the organization, for the sector, it's a great time for me to step back because so many of these conversations are about to go off in different directions and have somebody new come in, build on the great foundation we have here. I mean, we've got some tremendous staff uh, at MNL. It's a totally different organization than it was when I arrived. We have way more research capacity, way more outreach capacity. Um, so it's, you know, I, I said in some public comments recently, it's a tremendous machine for change, MNL is. So there's an opportunity for a new CEO to come in, harness all the resources we have here, and do some tremendous work. So I, I think it's the perfect time. We were talking about some of the extraordinary challenges facing municipalities, but um, I don't need to tell you, I know in my business, uh, dealing with people on a municipal level, uh, you can guarantee every last one of them is committed and passionate about their community. And that's what's um, prompted them to run sometimes time and time and time again, and to be devoted and uh, dedicated to the, um, you know, running of their municipality. Uh, do you feel that you're leaving things in good hands? Do you feel that there's a lot of, um, you know, positive uh, um, energy out there? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, you're right. You know, one of the one of the attractions of this job is that you do get to work on some really critical policy issues and outreach systems, that sort of thing. So if you're into that sort of thing, it's a great place to work. But the other side of it is you get to work with literally thousands of very committed community leaders. And when I got here, I was, I was a policy wonk. I loved this stuff. It was an intellectual exercise for me to try to work out solutions to some of these legislative problems and that sort of thing. Didn't take long before I realized that I wasn't doing the job for that reason anymore. I was doing the job because human beings are sacrificing massive amounts of their lives 
family time, work time, committing themselves to try to get their communities through and to improve their communities. And in some cases, there's great things happening in communities. I shouldn't say in some cases. In lots of cases, there's great things happening in these communities. And it's all down to the volunteers, the counselors, and the municipal staff who show up every day and do all this work. And I wasn't here very long before I realized, well, that's why I'm doing the job now, because these people need support. They need somebody, as you said earlier, somebody has to have their back. And MNL has their back, and I feel like I've had their back. And I look around at the staff now and the board. They are in very good hands. No matter who comes on to take this role on, the organization has never been better positioned to support councils and counselors so that they can continue to do the very cool, necessary work they need to do in their communities. So I, I feel like... I've I've, uh, I've left the ship in good shape, I think. So what's ahead for you personally? Uh, so for me personally, I'm going to be doing some consulting. Uh, I've, I've got my own little sort of policy strategy company started, Pollock Strategy, Inc. So I'm going to be available for municipalities or private firms or not-for-profits to basically do similar work that I do now. So... Lots of times I see municipalities trying to convince a provincial government or a, you know, the conversations between orders of government quite often don't go the way people think they will just because there's a bit of a translation issue there. They don't always understand each other, and I think I have something to offer there to help them understand one another. I'm pretty good at the strategy stuff, so if there are municipalities or NGOs that are looking to put together strategy on a particular issue, how are we going to achieve this thing that we want to achieve, I can help with that. Plus, uh, all through my career, I've been very lucky to work with some really great academics from all over the world doing research associated with MNL and tangential to MNL. And I'm going to have some time now to do more of that. So I'm hoping to do a, do a little bit more in sort of the primary research world, working with academics and institutions um, on you know stuff that interests me specifically. So that's sort of the three areas that I'm hoping to be working in. You mentioned you were a policy wonk, so you know MNL sort of fit into that uh, interest. Uh, but how did you get started with MNL in the beginning, 28 years ago? Uh, 20, oh, 20, 21 years ago, not 28. It's all bad enough. So sorry. <laughs> uh, it was. Uh, like so many things in life, uh, it was a window, an unexpected window that opened that I crawled through. Uh, I worked for the provincial government back then. I was in economic development and was very, very convinced, had written my thesis on it and done a bunch of research, convinced that municipalities needed a stronger role in economic development, specifically regional economic development. So one of my clients, uh, so to speak, when I worked for the project, I worked for a department called Development and Rural Renewal. And the Newfoundland and Labrador Federation of Municipalities was a group that I worked with quite a lot. I arranged study tours with them, helped them do research, helped them design and deliver workshops all over the province, and got to know the organization pretty well. And their executive director at the time uh, retired unexpectedly uh, to move to the States to be with her, her uh, parents. And I just sort of, I was on track to stay with the province and, and work my way up the ladder over there. 
but this opportunity came up and I thought this this seems just too cool to even not to not try to not you know make an attempt so I applied for the job and went through the process and next thing I know I'm the, I was the executive director of Newfoundland Newfoundland Labrador Federation of Municipalities and had never run an association before uh, had never been the executive director or CEO of anything before so I learned on my feet and uh, that's how I came into the role. They, they saw something in me around the policy side of things and believed in me and gave me the job. Derm Flynn was the president at the time. I just ran into him in Gander at our conference. He was there for another announcement. And I'm forever indebted to Derm and the other folks who were involved in that hiring process because I'm not sure I would have hired me, to be quite honest, <laughs> at the time. But they did, and I think it worked out. So that's how I got here. Well, Craig, I want to thank you very much for your time uh, with MNL and um, being so accessible to media to talk about these important issues. All the best now in your future endeavors, as they say. I really appreciate your time. Oh, no problem. It's been my pleasure. And thank you so much for your interest in having these discussions. It's, it's not everybody that wants to sit down for an hour and talk about the intricacies of municipal policy, but I've really appreciated the opportunities. and It's always been a great conversation. So thank you. And thanks for listening, everyone. Have a good and safe long weekend and stay tuned. We'll be marking Remembrance Day tomorrow morning with Brian O'Connell, remembering the sacrifices made by Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and Canadians in wars and conflicts throughout the world. Bye-bye for now.